This episode contains a description of sexual abuse. Listener discretion is advised. One week before Jean Vanier succumbed to thyroid cancer in 2019, he received a phone call from Pope Francis. The Pope later told reporters that he called to thank him and thank God for having given us this man with such a great witness. That witness was Vanier's ministry to the developmentally disabled, founding two worldwide organizations for their benefit and imparting a wisdom of the dignity of the disabled that would transcend boundaries. The headline in his New York Times obituary read, Jean Vanier, savior of people on the margins, dies at 90. Jean Vanier is a, was um, a big deal in our family. Um, Vanier was, we thought, a prophet and disciple to the disabled, um, a witness to what it means to love disabled people. And God gave us two disabled children. Our two oldest children have Down syndrome. J.D. Flynn, editor-in-chief of Catholic News Agency. And Vanier, you know, through his work founding L'Arche and, and Living L'Arche, gave witness to the dignity of people with disabilities and, and not just gave witness to their dignity, but gave witness to kind of the essential role that they play in proclaiming the gospel, that, um, that people who have disabilities have something to teach us about uh, the love of God. Through his writings, especially and through his witness, Vanier really, in a lot of ways, shaped our, the spiritual life of our family and helped our, our family to grow spiritually a lot. When Kate got pregnant, we knew that we wanted to um, to name our, our baby and turn it to be a boy. We knew that we wanted to name our baby in a way that would um, honor Vanier, but we wanted to sort of convey to our son that, that Vanier's way of living and being and praying was a way of worthy of imitation. The Flynn's decided to name their son Daniel Vanier Flynn. And especially because Vanier lived his life in the company of people who are disabled, and our son, whether he likes it or not, is called to live his life, probably most of his life, in the company of people who are disabled and to accompany them. In February 2020, L'Arche International, one of the organizations that Vanier founded, revealed that they had received six allegations from women about how Vanier abused their trust in him to coerce them sexually. In the guise of spiritual accompaniment, he would take advantage of them and even claim that it was Jesus who was loving them through him. I should note here that, as far as we know, Vanier never abused anyone served by the L'Arche community. It was really hard for us both to take in because we thought that Vanier was a, a saint and, a, and that his life was an imitable life um, towards holiness, but also because we'd saddled our kid with this name. You know, <laughs> we put this damn name on our kid and then the guy turns out to be a lie. You know, I mean, who, who he was turns out to be a lie. Kate right away was like, we should change his name. And I didn't want to, you know, I, first of all, I, I kept holding out hope, even though it had the ring of truth to me, I kept holding out hope that it would be, that he would be exonerated in some way. And I didn't want to judge him prematurely. I thought if we changed our son's name, we'd be like judging him prematurely or being, I don't know, disloyal or something. 
I think you were probably grieving a little bit. Yeah, I think we both were grieving in, in, in different ways. And I think for Kate, part of grieving was, let's move past this. And I, I, I wasn't ready to do that. I wanted to sit with the grief, and I didn't, I didn't want to believe it. Um, so we talked, we talked a lot between ourselves. We just had conversation after conversation between ourselves. We were, we were angry. We at different times we denied at different times. We felt stupid and foolish at different times. And we just had to think about how we would think about a lot of things differently. And I mean, we, you know, we had the guy's pictures on our wall. Part of what the Flynns were dealing with was this contradiction between Vanier's ministry and writings, a body of work compared to that of Mother Teresa, and the sexual abuse and spiritual manipulation he carried out in secret. Learning that Vanier sexually abused women who trusted him as a spiritual guide makes us question everything he taught, which might lead us to question not just other spiritual leaders, but also our own judgment. If we were wrong about someone we were so sure about, what else are we wrong about? Does holiness exist is a question that I ask myself most frequently after the downfall of Vanier. If this person wasn't holy, can I be holy? Can anybody be holy? I, I, does holiness exist? Is it possible to become holy? Is a question I really struggled with after Vanier. Eventually, Flynn was ready to change Daniel's middle name. We kept sort of coming back to... Um, Blessed Solanus Casey, whose humility was not exhibitionist, who wasn't world-renowned for being humble, um, but who who lived this life of quiet joy and self-gift and penance and mortification for the sake of the gospel. And uh, and we thought in a certain way he represented a lot of things that Vanier didn't. And uh, and so we we decided to to rename our son um, Daniel Casey after Solanus Casey rather than. This is Crisis, Clergy Abuse in the Catholic Church. I'm Cardinal Lozoya. The topic of this podcast is clergy abuse, but Jean Vanier wasn't a member of the clergy. Still, the revelations about Vanier in 2020 fit perfectly into the larger narrative of sexual abuse in the church. Similar themes emerged, a deference to authority or perceived holiness a spiritualization of the abuse, and a fear that no one would believe you if you told because of the status of the abuser in the life of the church. For many Catholics, it felt like one more blow to the same sore spot. On today's episode, we'll look at how the trauma of the abuse crisis has forced many Catholics to re-examine how they understand and relate to the church. We'll consider how our response is shaped by the communities and cultures to which we belong. Then, we'll explore how storytelling can help us make sense of the sex abuse crisis and give us possible clues for a path forward. J.D. Flynn's disillusionment with Jean Vanier sprang from an idea common to Catholics of his generation. Catholics who were born maybe in the 70s and 80s in the U.S. are talked about as being John Paul II Catholics. And, and, uh, and what that means is that our if we grew up practicing the faith or the way that we were formed in the faith was with this lion of a man as the pope, right? This rock star as a pope um, who was visibly holy and visibly a witness and who, um, if you were in the presence of John Paul II, you know, he had this charisma and energy and you, John Paul II made you want to be a saint. And, uh, and one thing that happened, I think, because of that, because John Paul II was iconic, more Bono than Bono, um, sort of the mode of um, 
regarding figures in the church was to hold them up in the same iconic way. So John Paul II generation, I think, ha- has been, and honestly, to some extent, I think John Paul II, who I wouldn't speak ill of, but I think probably perpetuated this in a certain way because of his understanding of visual symbols and the importance of of them, um, uh, these figures um, have loomed large in the imagination of Catholics of this generation, um, have been held up and put up on pedestals. One figure of that time who was revered among Catholics was Father Marcial Maciel, founder of the Legionaries of Christ, a religious congregation of Catholic priests, and the lay movement Regnum Christi. Maciel was hailed as a living saint, and even John Paul II famously called him an efficacious guide to youth. I, I'm not connected to the Legion or Regnum Christi or anything like that, but I was at some kind of thing where I was talking to Legionary people, and this guy was telling me about like how he had a a total conversion, and also he believed, he genuinely believed that he had a physical healing because he was in the presence of Maciel. And he's telling me, like, how he had this, how how lo- basically looking at Maciel healed him of this physical ailment because God's power was so, the Spirit of God was so present with Maciel. Despite Maciel's popularity, rumors of sexual abuse followed him beginning in the 1950s. Finally, in 2006, the Vatican found allegations of sexual abuse against Maciel to be credible and substantiated and ordered him to a life of prayer and penitence. It was later revealed that Maciel had abused at least 60 of his own seminarians. He even had two common-law wives and several children. And then Maciel fell, and lots and lots and lots of people for whom Maciel was at the top of the pedestal were devastated, were crushed. And then there have been other figures, too, who are pedestal figures and, um, and have fallen. And, that, and Vanier was a, a pedestal figure for us, you know? I mean, before he was dead, Kate and I were sure he was a saint. Um, before the church opened his canonization, Kate and I were sure that he was a saint. We looked at him as this iconic model of holiness because I think our whole life we had been putting certain figures uh, on pedestals and looking them at them as iconic models of holiness. John Paul II, Benedict XVI, Mother Teresa, and then, you know, and then even some of the sort of the saints who rose to prominence in this era, you know, sort of the, like, um, figure of Pier Giorgio Fursati, you know, kind of like this paragon of all that is awesome and stuff like that. And so we realized we'd been habituated to put people on these pedestals that were um, imprudent, it was imprudent for us because we allowed ourselves to believe certain things. We, we allowed ourselves to believe that some people were like superhuman in, in holiness. And it was unrealistic and it was setting, we were setting ourselves up one, one by one to be crushed or disappointed. And I saw this a lot like with when McCarrick fell that people were sort of saying like, well, we thought our bishops were the, the holiest people and now who are we supposed to look to? And, you know, I think for Kate and I, it's sort of like, well, Vanier fell and are, are we supposed to be looking for someone else? And it's like, no. The only person who deserves to be on a pedestal is actually on a cross. And um, it only makes sense for us to look to Christ because, again, we have to remember that the church is a church of sinners. So we have to expect that people in the church will be sinners and that people will be at least as sinful as us. Tom Doyle was one of the first people to realize the extent of the clergy sex abuse crisis in the Catholic Church. 
my awareness of how the church was responding to the victims was a gradual uh, development. It didn't happen all of a sudden. Doyle is an inactive priest and a canon lawyer. In 1985, he worked for the papal nuncio, Archbishop Pio Laghi, the Pope's representative in the United States at the time. It was Doyle who facilitated correspondence between the papal nuncio and the Diocese of Lafayette, Louisiana, when the church was sued by families whose children had been abused by Father Gilbert Gautet. Doyle believed Gautet to be an isolated case, a bad apple. But then Gautet's attorney, Ray Mouton, reached out to Doyle. And he said, Doyle, there's a real problem down there because the bishop has several more of these guys floating around loose, and he knows who they are, and they're doing nothing about them, meaning other priests who had been violating children who were being covered. Doyle and Mouton teamed up with psychiatrist Father Michael Peterson to write what is now referred to as the Doyle-Mouton-Peterson Report, a 92-page manual warning bishops about the looming sexual abuse crisis. We didn't want anything in return. We just wanted them to look at this and, and acknowledge it as a possible way to help. And I was stunned when Laghi called me in one day and he said, the bishops don't want this. And then to make it even worse, uh, they uh, made some public announcements through their legal office that the three of us, Mouton, Peterson, and I, put this thing together for our, our own self-aggrandizement, that we were going to sell ourselves to the bishops, uh, which was a complete lie, and that really stunned me. So when I realized all this was going on and could see that there wasn't, didn't seem to be the slightest bit of concern for the, the, the key people in this whole thing, which were the victims and their families, I, I had a hard time accepting that. I had a hard time wrapping my own brain around that. While Doyle was feeling disillusioned with the institutional church, he was growing closer to the victims and their families. So I saw this happening in front of me, and I was by then deeply involved, and I was committed and I couldn't back out. There's no way I was going to back out because I had gotten to know victims. I was meeting them, and that changed my life uh, dramatically. They weren't just numbers. They weren't names on a piece of paper. They were real people. And so my heart has gone out to the mothers and fathers over the years. The suffering they've gone through is unspeakable. And they've been ignored they've been, uh, by the hierarchy. The reason that people go to court, they've been going to court, is because when they approached the institutional church, they were ignored, they were shut down, they were lied to, uh, they were pushed out of the way. The church insider who worked for the papal nuncio soon found himself on the side of the victims, the laity. You know, in a sense, I was a product of the pre-Vatican Church. I was trained during the Vatican Council. I was ordained in 1970, which is 50 years ago. You know, it's a long time. Uh, and at that time, you know, we, we, it was ingrained in us. We didn't look at the laity as second-class citizens, but they were not the same as us. They were the laity, and we were the clergy. And we were the ones that had the cards in our hand. We had the power. Uh, we were to be obeyed and respected and so on, all of that. And I, I bought into all of that because it was simply uh, the part of the system that I was part of. And as time went on, what I've seen is the extremes where a lot of clerics uh, look down their nose at laity. They think they're above them. They're superior to them. And I really, honest to God, believe We've, what we've seen in the past 
three decades, is the dark side of the Catholic Church. It's been revealed over the centuries in different ways. Now it's being revealed in this, a very dark side that won't go away because with a lot of pious platitudes, a lot of sound bites and nonsense like that, it'll only go away when things change, when people change their attitudes and their understanding about what it's all about. When a kid is respected just as much in the real world and not just in words, when a little child is respected as much or his or her parents as much as the local bishop or archbishop, when they're just as important as he is. And that's not the case now, but it should be. Doyle has never given up fighting for victims, never stopped pressing the church to do better, even as his relationship with the Catholic Church has changed. Well, let me just say, I'm going to sum it up because a lot of that is is very personal. And uh, I have had to, I will say though that my, if you want to call it my faith, the things I believed in was uh, shaken right to the core, right to the core. Uh, years ago, when I saw what was going on, the lying, the dis- discard, disregard for victims, the fact that any priest or religious who spoke out publicly was punished, and there are very few that did. So all of this had a profound impact on me, on my, let's say, belief system, on the things that I thought I took for granted that I that were part of my belief system. So I I guess I would say I went through a very long, very painful process, a very personal process with the help of a couple people. One was a very dear friend who's a Methodist, retired Methodist minister, and the other was a a physician who was a very close friend. Uh, Just discussing, thinking, praying, um, looking at all of this and overcoming the fear of saying, I don't believe this, overcoming the fear of looking at all these things and the fear of uh, the, the threats that we had to live under. If you don't believe this, you're gonna, God's going to be angry with you. Oh, I rejected all of that. That's not the God I believe in at all. He's going to be angry with me because I doubt something, because I think about something? I don't think so. Not at all. And I couldn't see the finger of God or the hand of God in all this cover-up, all this lying and everything else. I think if, if Christ came back in Lafayette, Louisiana, He'd head for the home of the Gastel family. Those are the family that's, that stood up. He'd be there. He wouldn't be heading for the bishop's house. Because if he did head for the bishop's house, the bishop would be smart to run. Uh, so I, it has had a profound effect on me over the years. Uh, it's redirected the things I believe in. It's certainly helped me... Um, develop what I I know to be, what I hope to be, an authentic spirituality. In 2018, the U.S. bishops were coming to the end of a two-year process of engaging Hispanic Catholic leaders called Encuentro. The national event coincided with the fallout of the McCarrick revelations and the Pennsylvania Grand Jury Report. One of the organizers, Mari Munoz Visoso, executive director of the Secretariat of Cultural Diversity at the Bishops' Conference, says participants in the event didn't react in the same way as the mainstream English-speaking Catholic community. In the middle of 
the whole uh, explosion of this revelation of McCarrick, then we were in the process of the national event. And so you have a very stark contrast between the what, what some saw the response of the Anglo church or the you know, English speaking mainstream, if you will, and what was happening in the Latino portion of the church, which again is very diverse and is not monolithic at all. But you saw at a time where I think the mainstream in the Anglo church was, was crying out for justice, for transparency, for acknowledging what has happened in truth, you know, in, in some form of healing. The Latino community was also asking for that, but at the same time, they reacted differently. I think that many in the Latino community thought, we are outraged and this is painful and we want justice. We want justice, but we want to be part of the solution. We don't want to demand justice for someone else to fix it. We want help to fix it. And so I think that's what we saw in the dynamics of the Encuentro, that in the middle of all of this outrage, there was a certain community that stepped up to the plane and said, you know, we love the church. We understand that the church is filled with sinners. And sometimes that awful scene and evil uh, has permeated the highest spheres of the church. But we're not going to blame all the bishops for it. We have to seek justice for the victims. We have to seek punishment and you know, for the perpetrators. But at the same time, we have to help the community heal. In this community that we call the church we love. Munoz's work for the USCCB extends to the full array of cultural families in the church. And she says every community reacts in a different way. Uh, there have been cases in every community, uh, every community, and it's not less painful just because uh, we express uh, pain and, and anger in a different way, uh, you know. I, I think it's just communities react differently depending on, on both cultural, uh, you know, setting and background and also historic. I asked Munoz specifically about the Hispanic experience. In the U.S., they are by far the largest minority population in the church, and they may very likely make up the majority of U.S. Catholics in a matter of years. The Latino community is very diverse. There is no monolithic group. For those Latinos who uh, come from the Latin American experience, as I said, you need to understand there is actually less priests per Catholic, if you will. So sometimes the relationship with the priests, you know, for some Latinos are not has not been very close. If you come from some little ranchitos in Mexico, sometimes, you know, you see the priest every four months. There is not enough of them to go around, okay, for the, Catholic, the size of the Catholic population. The other thing is, again, as I said, uh, in Mexico, for example, you come from a, an experience where the church was persecuted, politically persecuted. Uh, priests were killed or incarcerated. They were forbidden to, to wear clergy dressing uh, for a while. So they have to appear outside of the church's walls as, as layperson. Right? They could not dress as, as religious people. Uh, and that was not that was until very recently. So so you have a an infrastructure of a church that became a very domestic church. So you have a people of a very strong faith that have relied relay a lot in the relationship with Mary, 
and with Her Lady Guadalupe, but it does also across other countries in Central America, and it's a very strong uh, Marian devotion as well in South America. But 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 I want to give you this idea because uh, they have grown. In, in a way that they have to develop a lot of the practices of the faith and the transmission of the faith, you know, in situations where it was the abuelitas and it was the, uh, you know, uh, the mothers and the lay catechists that had to do a lot of the transmission. So sometimes the relationship with the clergy has been um, distanced in that sense with a sense that they had this position of responsibility and power in the church and of guidance. But at the same time, uh, you know, as I said, not necessarily a very close relationship. And when you're dealing with populations from Central America and other places that come already traumatized, they have gone off a lot, you know, through a lot of trauma, wars and persecution and gang violence. And, you know, sometimes the immigration process can be very traumatic. Uh, and so those are very painful experiences. I was reminded of a story we followed about abuse cases in a predominantly Salvadoran parish in Northwest D.C. The pastor, Father Villalta, was removed for failing to report allegations to the authorities of sexual abuse by an associate priest. The community struggled with losing their pastor. I asked Munoz if she had any insight about this. The way I heard it, I, I just listen again. I, I don't worship in that particular community, but I have friends there. And the way that community, you, you, they left us orphan. They left us orphan because I think the pastor in that particular community was seen as someone who advocated a lot for um, for their needs, for their dignity, uh, you know, for immigration reform. And, and that he was very close to the communities. And then from night to day, it's, it's out of the picture. It's gone. They're not kind of a model suburban, you know, Paris that might might be very well off. There is a lot of things going in in, in communities and parishes like the ones you're talking about. And see, all of a sudden, their father, their spiritual father, is taken away without any further explanation. We need to look at, at how we do things, if I dare say that. Not that what was done didn't need to be done. I'm not questioning that. So I think, you know, gaining some intercultural sensitivity uh, and understanding is important to deal with these very grave matters as well. If we really want to help the individual and their communities heal. Uh, and that's something that I would like to express as well, that not everybody grieves the same way. Not everybody goes about resolving conflict the same way uh, or exercising leadership or, or developing trust in leadership. And the fact that they're not being as vocal uh, or as, you know, strong, that doesn't mean they're not suffering, first of all. That is not affecting them gravely. But they just go about it in a different way, and we need to accept that. A common theme that arose out of my interviews is that there's an uncomfortable tension between our belief that the church is holy and what we now know of the actions of some of our clergy. The church holds herself up as a teacher of moral reality. She holds herself up as a witness of Christ, the Redeemer. And so it is understandable that she would be expected to hold herself to higher moral standards than other institutions. J.D. Flynn. And the scandal and the hurt is all the more painful because, I mean, the church is our mother, right? And we call the church our mother. We don't call the public school district our mother. It'd be super weird. 
so if, you know, the public school district is a public service that we pay taxes for and we get it, it's consumeristic. The church is not that. The church is our family. And as a result of that, the betrayal of trust, the failure to live according to truth is all the more profound and all the more hurtful. But I think we ever more are learning to see the church as a communion of sinners. And sometimes that sin is grave and manifest and egregious and socially destructive. And sometimes that sin is personal, perhaps no less destructive for the soul, but but personal and, and, um, and its effect is limited. But, you know, one thing that we have, I think, learned from McCarrick and all these other people is that no sin is without effect on a broad network of people, that uh, sin is personal but not private. And so I think if there's a way in which we convey to our kids and um, to Daniel Casey that we should not be surprised to discover that people are sinners, at the same time we should not be satisfied with the fact that people are sinners. Like it's not enough to say people are sinners. We want people to be holy and we want the church to be holy structurally too, right? Flynn understands this on both a personal and professional level. As a Catholic journalist, the work he does shapes how other people understand the church. I think there's not a separation between sort of, at least at CNAR, journalistic work to um, hold to account things which need to be held to account and our faith in the church. We want to expose wrongdoing and see that the right thing is done precisely because we want the church to be holy and we want her members to be holy because that's what Christ instituted the church for in the first place. So we see our work, even our work of um, uncovering things that are broken as a service to Christ church because it's a part of our prophetic vocation to call the church to holiness. So do those types of stories damage the church? Like, are you are you advancing a narrative that is causing people to be even more disillusioned with the church? Do those types of stories damage the church? No. Bad acting damages the church. Holding people to account for bad acting might be bringing to light things which are scandalous once they come into the light, but they already happened. And, um, and keeping them covered, um, allowing them to remain unknown, allows more bad action to take place, right? I mean, sin foments sin. And that's what we discovered as we as we researched McCarrick. We saw, look, when there is an environment in which sin is tolerated, in which, honestly, what, what we discovered is when there's a network in which even sort of doctrinal infidelity is tolerated and celebrated, and I'm not saying that orthodoxy and moral purity go hand in hand, but when you get into an environment where you are, um, where being off mission, so to speak, in any number of ways is tolerated, well, the line of toleration gets further and further afield. And that's what we discovered, that um, envi- environments that in which McCarrick was able to act had other elements of dysfunction that made that bad action able to be ignored or facilitated or pursued um, because of uh, the things that had already taken place there. I think that public accountability is a necessary component of institutional reform and often the only catalyst for institutional reform. The bishops have been talking about accountability and reform and transparency for a long time, yet they still struggle to be seen as trustworthy. I think our bishops can um, gain our trust by, um, by showing us that they're not just processing all of this with pre-written statements and, um, and legalese and um, hiding behind um, crisis communicators and litigators. In our observation at CNA, I remember we talked about this in the newsroom, 
when people in our newsroom most began to trust Cardinal DiNardo was when he was really mad that the Holy See intervened to stop the vote on the USCCB policies. Not because we thought the policies were all that good, about half of us were rooting for him, half of us weren't, but there was a human being who was ticked, and he, Cardinal DiNardo did, is not, doesn't have a very good poker face and gave no evidence, you know, gave, made, seemed to make no effort to hide the fact that he was ticked. And his statements were not carefully crafted, um, communications office statements. I mean, I remember asking him a question, you know, Eminence, what, what do you think is going to happen? And his answer was like, oh, gee, I don't know. Like you know, and he puts his head right? in his like, oh. Yeah, right, like, oh, gosh. I don't know what we're going to do, J.D., you know? And it's like, wow, there's a human being who is invested in this. There's a human being who cares about this. There's a human being who cares so much about this that he's ticked. You know, he's been working hard at this thing. He wants to solve it. He can't solve it the way that he thought he would, and now he's ticked. That guy's working for something, and I'm willing to believe that that guy's working for me as a Catholic, right? But it was because of his humanity. You know, if if, if Cardinal Donato had gotten up there and gave some BS statement about today, we are grateful to the Holy Father and the Congregation of Bishops for intervening to stop our vote. Everybody would have known it was a lie. And uh, and everybody would have thought more of the same. There is a role that stories and cultural narratives play in our understanding of the church and the abuse crisis that extends beyond the hot takes of the 24-7 news cycle. To go deeper, I spoke with James Matthew Wilson, poet, critic, and professor at Villanova University. I asked him if there was a story that helped him process or understand what was happening in the church. Well, it's a grim one, actually. Um, one of the best-selling books, if not the best-selling book of the 19th century, is The, uh, the Horrible Confessions of Maria Monk, a book <laughs> that, that appeared uh, in America or in Canada in the middle of the 19th century and then quickly was republished in, uh, in England. And it was the story of a woman who claimed to have been uh, kidnapped and held in a convent and subjected to all kinds of macabre and perverse abuse, including sexual abuse. Eventually, it was revealed that the woman was mentally ill and had nothing she ever said was true. But the narrative itself, with its its gothic stories of dark secret passages in the in the dungeons of convents and monasteries really kindled the gothic imagination of an entire generation of people who received it as truth. It was a gripping story. It just wasn't true. Sadly, the clergy abuse crisis of today is, in many ways, just as horrific as the stories that Maria Monk made up. Reading the long catalog of these stories, some of them truly fantastical and uh, Hollywoodish <laughs> in in character, uh, reminded me of nothing so much as the tale of Maria Monk. And so my first response there was, Maria Monk has long been decried as awful anti-Catholic propaganda that was used by people with deep prejudices against the Catholic Church as a way to falsely uh, libel and slander the Church. Is it not the case, however, that many of the things that have been shown to have occurred within this church are as bad as what happened in that narrative. When are we going to properly refute the narrative? <laughs> when are we going to say, this was all wrong, you should never have thought these, uh, these lies about the church were true? Um, we can't say that. We have to say, huh, there are some moments 
in the history of our church that really seem like a Gothic novel, like a tale out of, out of the 19th century imagination, the tale of Maria Monk. The story of Maria Monk is actually pretty tame in comparison with some of the stories we've told on this podcast. We'll link to it in the show notes. I asked Wilson more generally about modern storytelling and how it might shape our response to the sex abuse crisis. The, the one thing that's consistent about the narratives we tell ourselves generally in the modern age is, is that things are less than they appear. Institutions exist primarily for, what would be the phrase, the rent-seeking or the embezzlement of the powerful within them, playing the faithful, the members of the institution for suckers. Especially Americans really tend to think of institutions as vehicles for con men. The historian Walter McDougall says that America is a nation, a nation of hustlers, and he means that in two senses. We, we like to do things. We're very active and dynamic. That plays into one narrative that we tell ourselves. The Catholics as going from poverty to riches. Catholics as assimilating into the American dream, the American middle class, and so on and so forth. But also Americans are hustlers in the more corrupt sense of that they're, they've always got a hustle going on. And so it's easy to talk about every institution and any institution, including the Catholic Church, in those terms. And we've got some evidence that that's occurred because the, the story of McCarrick is, is the story of a man, at least in part, it's the story of a man who sought to find a way to manipulate a generation or more of persons and uh, of the institutional structure of the church uh, to advance his own uh, illicit desires. I don't think that's the whole story. I bet there's also, as there is in everybody's story, a deeply wounded person struggling for holiness in there. It's hard to tell ourselves that story, though. It's hard not to, to make him into a demon, as, as many people view him, and not without reason. We can't tell the story of the abuse crisis honestly without directly addressing the evil of abuse and the harm done to survivors. But the telling of the abuse crisis that reduces the church to the sum of her failures is also not an honest telling of the church's story. It would be easier to distance McCarrick completely from the rest of the church, to dismiss him as a monstrous aberration. But any true story of the church must account for the likes of McCarrick, too. Not just as a source of depravity and wickedness, but as someone loved by God and for whom salvation is still on offer. As my colleague Stephen White told me, any Catholic telling of the story of the abuse crisis must leave room for the scandal of mercy. We need to be able to tell a story that's adequate to help us come to properly understand the full range of the truth of what's occurring here. And that is a hard thing to do. And it seems to be a thing that most people are unwilling to do. We need a way of retelling the story of this chapter of the church that does not reduce the narrative to mere acts of criminal malfeasance, that does not reduce bishops to mere managers. We need a story that can talk about the crimes that have been committed by McCarrick and other clergy, not merely in terms of crime, but in terms of sin. We need to be able to talk about the church as something other than a collection of individual human beings or of church buildings, of parishes being closed down. We need to be able to talk about the story Yes, including all of those things, but in much broader, more cosmic terms. 
We need to be able to think more fully about sin, but also sin in the context of grace and of salvation, uh, about our no longer being our own or belonging to ourselves, but belonging to Christ and being incorporated into his body. And we need to be able to think in terms of the individual failings that will always be part of that church, as long as it is a pilgrim church. If we're thinking this way, Wilson says, then the news of yet another failing or scandal won't put into question everything we believe. Opening our minds and our hearts to a story that expansive and explosive is kind of difficult. And it's made more difficult when you have so many other stories that are true in their own way, but inadequate or partial. What's important about these kinds of larger narratives, Wilson argues, is that they deepen our awareness of grace in the world. When I asked Wilson for an example, he made an unexpected choice. Bradley Berzer, the American historian, just has remarked repeatedly how uh, Willa Cather's death comes from the Archbishop is the greatest Catholic novel, and it probably always will be that, even though it was not written by a Catholic. Her death comes from the Archbishop is one of the greatest accounts of the American church that we will ever have, precisely because it has all of those mundane institutional problems that are so familiar to us from the settling of the Catholic Church. How do you get a church built? How do you get people to come to church? (laughs) Uh, What's it like being a priest in America? Um, All of those things are there. There are corrupt priests in Cather's story. Human failings and the failings of the flesh are everywhere in that story. And you sense the holiness, not of the bishop so much, but just the life of grace that's slowly unfolding and building upon those barren Western lands of New Mexico where the French bishop has come. But one of, the, one of my favorite moments is when the bishop is still traveling out West and uh, they're lost and they stop by a house. And the man who lives there reluctantly lets them in from the, the weather and the darkness to stay the night. And his, his wife is crazed and abused And when the husband leaves for just a moment, she warns the priests, he's gonna gonna rob and murder you. And so they immediately set out. And they're only saved in that moment by her early warning and by the weather. Soon thereafter, her husband is arrested for other robberies and murders, and and the woman herself is freed and lives a life, uh, not as a nun, but as as a, a servant of nuns and lives a a, a quasi-sacramental life thereafter. Um, That's one of those moments where you feel the sort of wayward path of providence, where where lots of bad things happen, human corruption is rife and thick on the ground, and grace somehow makes an entrance that steers, that that literally saves a couple lives, uh, but then also redeems another life in the process. That's a great story. I actually had a different reaction to that episode in Cather's book. I remember feeling disappointed when the priests ran away from the house, saving themselves, but leaving the woman behind. I wanted the priest to take a stand, be a hero. But I guess that wasn't the story Cather was telling. 
the church needs to remind Catholics that their story is not merely a cultural or historical adventure. We live in a world that is saturated by signs from God. Everything that is, as Gerard Manley Hopkins put it, delivers news of God. And so we need to learn to live our lives with uh, a greater sense of attention and prayerfulness and an openness to the movement of grace. And so we need to be able to tell the story of, um, of sin and redemption, of fallenness and grace with dynamism and with a, a, a sense that this is part of every human being's life. I think in that context, it's possible to understand, not to excuse, but to understand why that drama inevitably is going to play itself out within the stage of the church, just as it will everywhere in human life and in human history. Next time on Crisis, holding bishops accountable for clergy sex abuse, we'll discuss Vosestis Lux Mundi, the reforms issued by Pope Francis to hold bishops accountable for committing or covering up sex abuse. We'll talk to Pulitzer Prize-winning journalist Harriet Ryan from the LA Times, Cardinal Timothy Dolan of New York, and Christopher Alteri, Rome Bureau Chief at the Catholic Herald. From the Catholic Project at the Catholic University of America, you're listening to Crisis. Our podcast team includes myself, Carnal Lozoya, executive producer Stephen White, producer Jeff Gosser, and communications manager and writer Sarah Perla. Sound designed by Paul Veitkus. Music courtesy of Jay Tibbetts and APM Music. Our theme song was composed by Gautam Shrikashun. Marketing and distribution provided by Jeff Umbro of The Podglomerate. Cover art by Tom Grillo. And a special thanks to Karen Michelle and all of our guests. For an episode guide or for more information about The Catholic Project, go to thecatholicproject.org. If you've been sexually assaulted, you can receive confidential support 24-7 through the National Sexual Assault Hotline at 1-800-656-HOPE. That's 1-800-656-4673. If the abuse is related to the Catholic Church, you can also contact your diocese's Victim Assistance Coordinator. Contact information for each diocese is available at usccb.org forward slash VAC.